Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 169, King Without Rule. Last time, we had something of a question mark over how far Warwick was in the know or not about York's plans to claim the throne. Well, whether Warwick was blindsided by York or not, what I do know is that Warwick came out of the whole affair smelling of roses. It could be that the Paston family was biased, of course, but surviving letters indicate that Warwick, the kingmaker's stock, had risen higher than the proverbial kite. One letter said, There is great talking in this country of the desire of my lord of York. The people report full worshipfully of my lord of Warwick. In another, a friend wrote to John Paston, saying, If aught come to my lord of Warwick but good, farewell ye, farewell I, and all our friends. For by the way of my soul this land were utterly undone, as God forbid. Meanwhile, let us leave the streets of London and fly to Wales, where we will find Queen Margaret with Jasper Tudor. Now there might have been some people who thought that the deal between King and York had solved all the problems and quieted any more debate. But there can't have been many of them and those that there were must have had brains the size of small, shriveled nuts. Still, Margaret was without doubt in a bit of a spot. Warwick's spies were all over her like a rash, trying to trick her out of the temporary safety of Jasper Tudor's lands in West Wales. When Margaret and Henry had last parted, they'd agreed that Margaret should only trust messages that came from Henry when they came with a special sign that only he and Margaret would recognise. Obviously, Henry immediately told Warwick, York or Salisbury or somebody, because now Margaret was subject to a stream, nay, a mighty river of special signs, accompanied by messages claiming to be from Henry, telling her to come and join him. Margaret was far too sharp to be caught that easily. 
Margaret knew that the fat lady was some way away from singing just yet. She had a group of well-connected, powerful lords firmly wedded to her cause. Exeter, Devon, Henry Beaufort, a.k.a. Somerset, Percy, Clifford, even Wiltshire, if there's any point in counting Wiltshire. It's not possible to know how far the Queen, or indeed Jasper Tudor, coordinated things, but if you think Salisbury, Warwick and York are in cahoots, you ain't seen nothing yet, cahoot-wise. Clifford and Beaufort in particular are driven by a thirst for revenge to claim back their honour after the shame of their father's murders. We know what a piece of work Devon is, a.k.a. Courtney, still locked in a desperate struggle for dominance with the Yorkist Bonvilles for all the world like a gangland turf war. Margaret had another idea, though, of where she might get support. By the end of 1460, she'd sailed to Scotland to meet Mary of Gelders. As I believe I may have remarked before, if you think that English medieval politics was a little brutal, have a look at the Scots. They make English politics look like a Sunday afternoon beetle drive. Whatever a beetle drive actually is. Up there, James II had been married at the tender age of 12 to the much older and more experienced Mary of Gelders, who was in fact 15 at the time. Now, as a boy at the age of 12, girls had no more than a passing interest for me other than as a source of irritation, but not so our James. Within two years, Mary had the first of seven children they had together, including another James, who would become James III. However, James Senior was the guy who, seeing that the English were down, proceeded to stick the boot in and besiege the then English castle of Roxburgh. Sadly for Jimmy, the knife he attempted to stick in the English back turned on him, and he was killed in the siege which left Mary of Gelders as one of seven regents, which is reasonably forward-thinking of Scotland, until her son, yet another James, came of age to take over the job of sticking knives into English backs. In Mary, Margaret saw an ally, the providers of a Scottish army with which she could retake her kingdom on behalf of her husband and son. By the new year, 1461, Margaret had taken a boat to Dumfries in Scotland and for ten or twelve days she was closeted with the Queen and her advisers, and came out of the meeting brandishing a treaty. Scottish soldiers, in return for giving up the English border fortresses of Roxburgh and Berwick, and the marriage of Prince Edward to one of Mary's daughters. The humiliating surrender of fortresses that had been fought over for a century would not go down well with the English lords, but Margaret would have her thrown back, come what may. While all this was going on, events, to a degree, had overtaken her. Early in the new year, dramatic news reached her from England. York, Warwick and Salisbury may have taken control of England's political head, but they were a long, long way from taking control of the body. None of the lords and magnates who agreed to the act of accord were from the Lancastrian side of the bed. The agreement would have to be forced on them before York could rest easy. And even while Parliament was going on in September-October, the north of England was in flames. While Salisbury's attention was in London, his enemies, the Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, the Lords Clifford and Dacre, gathered their tenants and retainers and made a bonfire of Salisbury's estates in the north. Meanwhile, in November, Margaret had written to Somerset and all her noble supporters to meet her at Hull, 
on the River Humber in the northeast of England with all their strength. And folks had responded. Somerset was at Corfe in Dorset and had been joined there by one Thomas Courtney, the new Earl of Devon. This, incidentally, is the same Thomas Courtney that had taken a bunch of blokes to Nicholas Radford's farmhouse in Devon and had him murdered in cold blood. Somerset and Devon set off northwards with a force of men. In Hull itself, maybe as many as 15,000 Lancastrian supporters would eventually gather, all while the Queen was still in Scotland. Meanwhile, trouble was also brewing in Wales, where Jasper and Owen Tudor were being joined by the Earl of Wiltshire with Irish and Breton mercenaries. In summary, the Yorkists had only managed to start the process of winning the crown, by no means completing the task. And so the group looked at each other and prepared to get the job done. Warwick was to stay in London at the head of the government. Salisbury and York were to head north with York's son, Edmund of Rutland, to deal with the main event. And meanwhile, Edward the Earl of March was to be given his first independent command at the tender age of 19. His job was to prove himself a man by heading to Wales to put together an army to defeat the Tudors. It is notable in all this that we are still talking about a small group of the same peers. So while March, for example, was to be joined by William Herbert, Herbert was already a Yorkist client. There was absolutely no sign at all of Parliament really throwing itself behind what was supposedly the new government. There was no appetite to declare the Queen of England a rebel, for example. Salisbury and York appear to have been pretty confident about their chances, struggling north through appalling weather with a pretty minimal army. On their way, they had advance warning, since they tangled with part of Somerset's army, also travelling north to Hull, leaving York with a metaphorical bloody nose. Now, York and Salisbury had a plan, which were the commissions of array they carried with them. These are official letters on the authority of the King and Parliament to call out the local tenantry to fight. Even if the commissions were to be effective, and the form was not that great, it has to be said, it still meant Salisbury and York were seriously short of firepower in the short term. And their first objective was to get their army inside one of two major castles, the Castle of Sandal, just outside the Yorkshire town of Wakefield, and Pontefract, one of the great castles of the north since the time of Billy the Conk. In fact, the rebels, led by Henry Percy, had already taken Pontefract, so it was to Sandal that York headed. Once inside, York and his companions took stock. It's worth noting that York was very short of support from any other group of lords outside the Yorkist clients. On the other hand, he was not short of experienced military men. Northumberland and Clifford, now joined by Somerset, were just nine miles away at Pontefract. But it was coming up to Christmas, so there seems to have been a truce negotiated. Which was good for York from one respect helping him gather more men. Bad from another in that he was seriously short of supplies, and as you'll know, being short of supplies at Christmas is a bad idea. God forbid we should ever run out of ginger wine. By the 30th of December, the situation was clearly getting desperate. The Lancastrians had appeared at the bottom of the castle walls, and inside the castle walls all the ginger wine had indeed been finished, and everything else was getting low as well. York's advisers were telling him to stay right where he was inside the safety of the walls. But York appears to have had a rush of blood to the head, either that or he knew just how serious the food situation was. 
And so York appears to have gone for a bold roll of the dice. Go for glory and all that. Out of Sandal Castle came York's army, led by York himself, Salisbury and Edmund of Rutland, and they rushed the far bigger Lancastrian army. Ominously, Somerset let them come on, until the Yorkists had reached into the plains beyond the castle hill before engaging them. And the Yorkists began to realise that they were in a trap. From their flanks, Lancastrians appeared, John Clifford, Exeter, Andrew Trollope, the captain of Calais who had deserted Warwick at Ludford Bridge. As progressive Lancastrian contingents joined, the Yorkists found themselves surrounded. The Battle of Wakefield was a rout, and the Yorkists were cut to pieces. And in the chaos, Richard of York, the Richard who had been planning to be called Richard III, was cut down and killed. As the battle disintegrated into chaos, various leaders made a bid to escape. Salisbury seems to have managed to slip away off the battlefield and hide out, waiting for the knight to slip away to safety, leaving his son, Thomas Neville, dead on the battlefield. York's second son, Edmund of Rutland, fled, and he made it to the bridge, over which lay the possible sanctuary of the chapel of St Mary the Virgin. But behind him, John Clifford had spotted the bid for freedom. Now John Clifford had all the motivation he needed to catch the lad. His own father had been killed at St Albans by the Yorkists. Unfortunately for Rutland, Clifford was faster and caught him on the bridge and as Rutland's companions begged for the lad's life, Clifford cursed him, told him to prepare for death and then thrust his dagger through his heart. As the battle came to an end, Somerset had in front of him other significant lords, and one of them was William Bonville's 18-year-old son and heir. With Thomas Courtney at Somerset's elbow, there was little hope for the lad, and he was executed as well. We've talked about the impact of local struggles for power between magnets as critical in the causes of the Wars of the Roses, and here's a nice example. We've talked about the importance of blood feud in making wars last longer and become more vicious, and in Rutland's death, here we have the perfect example. Somerset retired to the castle at Pontefract. But later the same night, there was more excitement. Salisbury himself had been discovered and captured and was now in the castle. Somerset himself appears to have been willing to let Salisbury ransom himself off, but the good tenants of Pontefract a manor which was previously owned and managed by Salisbury, appear to have been less forgiving, which doesn't say a lot for local loyalties or Salisbury's previous regime. And so Salisbury was executed, and York had lost another leader. Now, as it happens, there are different ways I could have told the story of the Battle of Wakefield. It seems to have been an unusually controversial engagement. One version has a story of treachery, where the Earl of Westmoreland took York's commissions of array and then used them to recruit for the Lancastrians. There was another where Andrew Trollope infiltrated 400 men into York's garrison. Another where a feigned Somerset retreat tempted York out of the castle. Another where York was simply foraging and the Lancastrians broke the Christmas truce. But I've gone for that which seems most simple and straightforward – but more exciting options are available. And I'm told if you go and read a play called Richard III by some bloke called William Shakespeare, you'll get a whole load of further embellishments. But then William's job was to entertain, not teach history. 
Whatever version you go for, Wakefield transformed the situation from Lancastrian despair to Lancastrian triumph. By the end of January, Margaret was in York, and the Lancastrian lords and the army were with her. Over the walls of Micklegate Bar in York were stapled the heads of the Yorkist lords, York, his son Rutland, Salisbury, his son Thomas Neville, and others. It was Richard of York's head that was the subject of the greatest contempt and mockery, with the addition of a paper crown to mock his pretensions. There's another contemporary story, actually, about York's death, to quote Wheatum's head's register. They stood him on a little anthill, and placed on his head as if a crown, a vile garland made of reeds, just as the Jews did to the Lord, and bent the knee to him, saying in jest, Hail, king without rule! Hail, king without ancestry! Hail, leader and prince, with almost no subjects or possessions! And having said this and various other shameful and dishonourable things to him, they at last cut off his head. The balance of opinion seems to be that York was probably dead before the end of the battle, but if nothing else, the story reflects the contempt and antipathy that now held sway between York and Lancaster. We are no longer at home to Mr Loveday. Margaret gathered her captains and lords and magnates and made them all swear to uphold the humiliating treaty with Scotland and agreed a plan. The plan was not complicated. March on London, crush Warwick, take the king back, celebrate, dance on Warwick's grave. There was just one subplot. Hook up with Jasper Tudor, who would be coming from Wales to make the Lancastrians even more invincible than they already were, and on the way, he'd have hopefully dealt with another of York's hideous brood, Edward of March. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So, let us fly then to Shrewsbury in the west of England, where sits Edward, Earl of March. Let me warn you, lords, ladies and gentlemen, that we're about to have another battle. I can hear your sigh of disappointment and despair as I write, is this bloke seriously going to describe all 13 set battles of the Wars of the Roses? Sadly, folks, the answer is, yep, I like a battle knee, as long as I'm safely in my shed while it's going on, of course. So, Edward of March spent Christmas at Gloucester. When the news of his father's death reached him, he gathered together his army and prepared to set off east towards London to help Warwick prepare for the Queen's arrival, accompanied by the faithful Yorkist William Herbert. But before he could get far, news reached him that the army of Jasper Tudor was on the march and approaching Hereford from the west. And with him was the Earl of Wiltshire, whose last significant act had been to run away with a bunch of men in some ships and claim sanctuary in Utrecht. But now he'd bestirred himself. He'd collected some men from his Irish estates, since he was also the Earl of Ormond, and he'd joined Jasper as well. And so Edward turned north to meet them. 
The two armies came together very near the Earl of March's caput at Wigmore, at a place called Mortimer's Cross, on the 2nd or 3rd of February. Now this time, Wiltshire outshone all of his previous exploits by running away before the battle started, heading north to the Queen in disguise to add to his already impressive martial achievements. But Jasper Tudor, Jasper Tudor was made of sterner stuff. Now both armies appear to have slung themselves across a valley with the River Lug defending one flank and the hills the other. Actually, it appears that Wiltshire's contingent did rather well without him on the one flank, pushing the Yorkists back. And then into the fray came Jasper Tudor's father, Owen Tudor, the one who'd married Catherine de Valois, Henry V's widow. Owen went for a flanking movement on the left as his son Jasper engaged in the centre. And Edward looked to be in trouble, but in fact, Owen's flanking attack turned out to be a big mistake. And it was heavily defeated, dissolved in rout, and in the resulting chaos, the entire Lancastrian army was swept aside. Jasper Tudor ran for it and escaped. Owen Tudor ran for it and was captured. Owen clearly hadn't been paying attention to the activities of the last few months. He felt pretty relaxed about the whole capture thing. It was fine. Noble folks like him didn't get executed. They got a slap on the wrist, were made to pay a fine and told not to do it again. Owen was taken to Hereford and told that he was going to have his head cut off. Owen laughed gaily in the face of such a threat. Ha ha! And went happily to Hereford. Even when he saw the axe and block and was stripped to his red velvet doublet, he held on to hope. But when the collar of his doublet was rudely stripped away, the horrid truth hit him. Apparently, he then sighed, That head shall lie on the stock that was wont to lie on Queen Catherine's lap, which for some reason sounds most unlikely to me, or at least, very least, a little wet. But who am I to judge? Either way, now we've got another blood feud on our hands, Tudor and York. There are a couple of other things to mention about Mortimer's Cross. The first is that it's Edward's coming of age. He was just 18 years old, but has won his very first victory in command. He's shown the ability to be decisive and think quickly. He's tall at six foot four, good-looking and a warrior, and a good leader. The new Duke of York has a future. The second thing to mention is the word parhelia. that mean anything to you? Parhelia is a word that meant nothing at all to me before I came to write this episode. It is apparently a phenomenon that makes it seem as though there are multiple suns in the sky. Something about light interacting with ice crystals in the atmosphere. Whatever. But the point is that before Mortimer's Cross, there appeared to be three suns in the sky, shining above Edward's head. Everyone was nervous, no one could relax, but Edward stepped forward and told them it was a good sign. The sun in splendour was the result, the emblem for which Edward came to be known. So, where are we? Quick recap. Warwick's in London, Margaret on her way south from York with a massive army, Edward in Wales, looking to get back to London to help Warwick. Though actually, the lad doesn't bust a gut to get back, which is interesting. So, let's go to Margaret. Once again, if the Wars of the Roses was simply a popularity contest where the nobility voted for the one they wanted, then the Lancastrians would have won every time, hands down. Margaret had with her a glittering array of barons. Shrewsbury, Northumberland, Devon, Exeter, Wiltshire among them. 
Now, of course, she was joined by a mob of Scotsmen delivered to her by the treaty she'd agreed. It was a big beast of an army. However, Margaret was in an odd position. She no longer had the king with her. Officially, at least, York, Warwick, Salisbury had been acting with the authority of the king and parliament, while those guys in the north with Queenie were nothing but a two-bit, no-good cotton-picking bunch of rebels. If there'd ever been any doubt, there was now nowhere to hide. This was a struggle between two factions, Lancaster and York. So Margaret had a view about the branding of all of this. She couldn't get everyone behind the king because officially he was now behind York. Getting everyone behind her as a queen was a bit tricky since everyone seemed to think that women shouldn't be running the place. So who better to get everyone behind than the seven-year-old prince, Edward of Westminster? So she gave him a livery, black and red. She gave him an emblem, a swan with a crown round its neck and the 15,000-man-strong mob that came south from York that February 1461 all wore the emblem and the prince's colours. I say mob because the Queen and her army blotted their collective copybook so comprehensively that it would have been quite impossible to see any copy at all in said book. The Queen let her army off the leash to loot and plunder as they wished. In fact, it was possible that if there ever had been a leash, that the Queen had burnt it ceremonially for all to see and rolled naked in the ashes. As they came south, the army burned and pillaged as though they were in the Hundred Years' War in France, on a front 35 miles wide, and anything in its path was destroyed utterly. Newark, Stamford, Peterborough burned and wept as she passed. It was a mistake. It's a problem, trying to present yourself as the best available chance of good governance while burning and destroying your subjects at the head of an army at least significantly peopled by a foreign power. One of the rather interesting things about the Civil War so far is the compellingly unimpressive choices on show. Richard of York had proved himself to have two left feet in the political dance, Margaret had the subtlety of Attila the Hun, and Henry, well need I say more. Basically, Richard and Margaret swap mess-ups. Because all this death and destruction seriously put up the collective backs of the Southerners and gained support for Warwick like Topsy. There's almost a North v South thing that emerges. Here's a quote from Clement Paston in London. Here everyone is ready to go with the Lords, and I hope God will help them, for the people in the North rob and steal and have arranged to pillage all this part of the world and give away men's goods and livelihood throughout the South. The lords want to attack the northerners for the good of everyone in the South. So there you go, the north-south divide, alive and well and living in 1461. It was a practical help to Warwick. London was scared, but not at all keen to have the Queen's mob running around in London. So they helped Warwick raise his army and lent him some cash. Plus, Warwick's time in Calais and the diplomatic round helped him with a contingent of Burgundian handgunners from the Duke of Burgundy. The barons that had now decided to throw in their cards with the Yorkists brought their contingents too. John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, John de la Poole, Earl of Suffolk, William Fitzalan, the Earl of Arundel, and John Wenlock. Falkenberg was there, and Bonville, suffering no doubt from the news of the death of his son. Also, there's a new title on the block you all need to know about. 
Obviously, Warwick, never short of a bob or two, is now even more fabulously wealthy than ever with the death of his dad Salisbury, to the point where worrying about the grocery bills is a thing of the past. But he took this opportunity to share his fortune around a bit, and his brother John Neville was therefore made Baron Montague, and Montague shall herewith and henceforth John Neville be called. And the calling of the naming shall be Montague. Neville, he shall no longer be named, and John will be right out. Warwick led his army out of London around the 12th of February. His strategy was a defensive one. He knew that Margaret and Somerset were plundering southwards, and his scouts told him they were probably around Royston. So his plan was to get to St Albans and make it a fortress against which the Lancastrians would waste their superior numbers. And numbers on both sides were quite enormous, given the quantities we've got used to in Norman days. Even with the panic and all the late notice, by rootling around behind the sofa, Warwick had managed to rustle up close to 10,000 men. And Margaret was over the 15,000 mark. But Warwick still had a big deficit in numbers to overcome, so maybe that's why his approach to the Second Battle of St Albans was to be so much less aggressive than the first. Warwick essentially set up a defensive position in a line spread eastward from the burbs of St Albans, covering the two roads south to London, down which he assumed the Queen would travel. There was much talk of the new technology, bowmen equipped with pavies, i.e. door-like things behind which they could hide, studded with nails so that if they decided to run away, they could lie them flat and they'd act as an obstacle. Then there were the Burgundian handgunners, there were thick corded nets covering gaps in hedges or walls. With Montague commanding the left wing, Warwick the centre and Norfolk the right, Warwick was ready. Battle was joined on the afternoon of the 16th of February and it took time to dawn on Warwick that something was wrong. None of the rest of the Lancastrian army was where it ought to have been. Norfolk on the right was not engaged at all and Warwick in the centre hardly while Montague, on the left, was in danger of being overwhelmed. In fact, Warwick's technology was fine, it was his information that was at fault. During the night, the Queen and Somerset had swung to the west and approached St Albans from the northwest rather than the northeast, and effectively that meant they were outflanking Warwick to his west. Desperately, as he realised what was going on, Warwick tried to adjust to bring Norfolk's wing round to the west to counteract the Lancastrian forces pouring into the town around Montague's division, to reorient his army completely around where the Lancastrians were coming from. But it was chaos. Now, my military skills are pretty much zip, everyone, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that manoeuvring in the face of the enemy is just a bad idea, and so it proved. Also, Warwick discovered the same weakness about set fortifications that the French would discover in 1940. They're useless if they're in the wrong place. The slaughter began, and the Yorkists fled as they could. There's a story afterwards that the defeat was due to the rubbish Burgundian handgunners and the treachery of a Kentish contingent led by a chap called Lovelace. But don't believe it. It's probably just a bit of scapegoating to let the perfect Warwick off the hook. In fact, did you hear that people in London called Warwick Mr Nobody? Know why? because nobody's perfect. Ha <laughs> ha! Anyway, St Albans II was a straightforward whitewash by Lancastrian over Yorkist. Henry was found sitting under a tree, laughing and singing, guarded by William Bonville. Bonville. 
well, Thomas Courtney could hardly believe his luck and would have been rubbing his hands with glee as Margaret caught up with the king and his guardian. But Bonville would have been feeling okay because Henry the king, after all, had promised immunity to him. Margaret, however, thought not and she brought forward her seven-year-old son to teach him the craft of governance. Margaret pronounced death, while Edward was permitted to pronounce the manner of it. They should be beheaded, said the lad. Despite Henry's pleas, oh, Henry, do pipe down, there's a dear. The sentence was carried out, and Henry was dispatched to the nearby abbey, there for his other pleas for mercy to be ignored as well, as the Lancastrian army took their reward in carnage on St Albans. We've been following that struggle for supremacy in the southwest. Well, just as Lancaster now seemed to reign supreme, so the Courtney family seemed to have regained their grip in Devon, with a bit of judicious turning of coats at the right time. Bonville's heirs were all now in the female line, and an uncertain succession lay ahead for them. There was just one good thing about the Battle of St Albans for the Yorkists. Since it started late... Nightfall came early enough to prevent the army's complete annihilation. In the night, Warwick managed to gather together the nucleus of an army. There was surely no point in going down to London. Warwick assumed they'd have nothing to do with the losing army. They'd open their gates to the king and queen and the victors. Nope. Warwick headed west through the winter mud and rain and cold, headed into the Cotswold Hills west of Oxford to find Edward. On the 17th of February, the morning after the victory at St Albans, it seemed that all Margaret needed to do was demand admittance to London and all England was hers. Poor Cecily Neville certainly feared so. From York's residence in London, Baynard's Castle, a boat set out taking York's other sons, Richard and George, to safety in Utrecht, although Cecily herself remained behind. And so next week we'll see if this is indeed the end of the story for York. Richard of York dead, Salisbury dead, Warwick defeated, his army scattered, London at Margaret's feet. Or if the Wheel of Fortune has one more turn in it. I should also mention that I've created a bunch of maps describing the various military activities described in this week's episode, so do hop along to the website historyofengland.com. Or, as I think I should possibly say, hit me up on thehistoryofengland.com. But to be honest, that sounds embarrassing, so don't do that. For the moment, I have some donators to thank. To my beloved monthly donators, Alan, Mary, Oak, Bernard, Russell, James, Henry and Simon. To donators this month, David, Luke, the super generous Jay, and to Peter, my grateful thanks. Don't forget to check out the History of the Papacy podcast and the website for our network, agorapodcastnetwork.com and thanks to everyone who's commented on the website facebook itunes and all that sort of thing and to all of you who listen in good luck everyone and have a great week planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 